Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you are enjoying the Bumps and Thumbs podcast. In order to continue to run the podcast and get guests on the show, we need support from people like you. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dash Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, the number three, and click on the support button. Once you are there, you'll have options to select from to make a monthly contribution. Your support will help us get on wrestling stars that require financial compensation. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-N dash Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, the number three, and click on the support button. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. Our guest today is a returning guest, our historian, our co-host of the podcast, AWA Unleashed, with uh, Mick Karch and Chris Tubbs. Welcome back, Mr. George Shire. George, thanks for coming back. Brian Ferguson, how are you? You know, uh, you, you say I'm back. I don't know. I keep telling you, I think I'm on quite a bit. I don't know. I, how many have I been on? Yeah, about six or seven now. But you know what? I've and I've told you this probably off oh, off, offline as well that you get the most hits, and I'm not even that's not a lie. I can show you graphs. Well, so, I, that, I'm humbled if you say that, but that's uh, true. Okay, it's true. I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. So today, folks, again, we're doing another no agenda, no questions on the sheet and no answers nothing nothing so i've i want to talk about today florida the territory of florida that was a thriving promotion for quite a few years and it was i know of eddie graham running it i don't know if there's people behind that we'll talk about that in a minute but i don't know lately i've been seeing things about florida and it just occurred to me that i want to talk about florida so George, Florida, if you can, kind of walk us through how it got started, if there was an original promoter before Eddie, and how it came about um, in the territory era. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, you show, we both showed our blank pages, yes. and uh, I, I want the listeners to know that we got on the air here today, and as soon as we got on the air, you told me we were talking about Florida, so... <laughs> This is totally unprepared. I, yes. I, I do like this. I do like this. Here's the deal. Uh, yes. Bef- and first of all, let me say this. I'm going to hope that my friend Barry Rose. Do you know Barry Rose? I've, he- I have, I've heard of him. I know who he is. Okay. I don't know him personally. Okay. I'm going to hope that my friend Barry Rose will hear this or see this uh, bumps and thumps because I consider Barry Rose to be the man when it comes to championship wrestling from Florida. Um, He is to Florida wrestling, which was a huge promotion in the day, in the territory days. He is to Florida what, uh, what I guess I would say I am to the AWA. Mm -hmm. If, if Barry doesn't know it, it didn't happen. So I hope Barry gets a chance to see this and I'll bring it to his attention. And in the meantime, I hope that if he is listening, he will critique me along the way if I uh, get my tang tangled up and mess up or something. Because, um, but I, I give him credit for being the guru. Okay, so uh, Florida. Yeah. Uh, before before Eddie Graham, there was a uh, promoter down there uh, by the name of, and I may mispronounce his name. I, I don't recall that I've ever actually heard it said verbally. I've read it for decades, mm-hmm. but. He went by Cowboy Latrell or Luttrell, and I'm guessing it's Luttrell, Cowboy Luttrell. And he was the uh, promoter down there for a long, long time. In uh, the early 60s, uh, Eddie Graham was kind of not 
quitting wrestling, but he was sort of lightening his schedule a little bit and, and uh, you know, toning down his own career a little bit. Before that, he'd been up on the East Coast and all over with his brother, Dr. Jerry Graham, and his other brother, Crazy Luke Graham. But he was uh, kind of curtailing his little bit, and he bought into the Florida promotion. And so uh, probably around, I want to say 63 or 64, maybe, uh, could have been a year earlier. And again, that's where good old Barry will help me out along the way and tell me I'm an idiot if I'm wrong. So, <laughs> so yeah, Cowboy Luttrell okay. or Luttrell. However, I, I'm guessing it's Luttrell. Okay. Okay. So Eddie Graham buys into the promotion in the early 60s. He was a wrestler, well-known. Uh, let's talk about Eddie for a minute. I, I've re- I just finished the book, Truth Be Told by B. Brian Blair. And he speaks. I have not read that book. It's an excellent book. It's an excellent book. But he talks very highly of Eddie Graham and his uh, thought processes of of booking and and mentoring and training wrestlers. Give us your insight on on Eddie as far as that and the promotion, you know, how he got it really rolling in the the 70s or 60s and, and 70s. Well, I can speak to what you're saying. You know, as I said, I haven't read uh, Blair's book, but um, I can speak to what he's saying when he calls, you know, Eddie, probably one of the premier promoters, uh, guys for booking matches, the creativity. I had a very creative mind and how to to uh, get a feud going, keep it going, end it, start it over, you know, build programs around guys. It's interesting that when and I don't know if you've read Bill Watts' book or uh, Ole Anderson's book. I have not yet. No. Both, I would tell you, while we're on the subject of books, real quick, okay. both of them, as far as I'm concerned, are must okay. reads for anyone who wants to know about the old school. Now, I'm going to say this in tongue in cheek. We all know that Ole Anderson sometimes has the reputation of being an old curmudgeon. And he's difficult, difficult to get along with. But here's the deal with Oli. Oli is a straight shooter. He tells it like it is. He tells it like it was. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily everybody always likes that. Yeah. And sometimes he touches a nerve. But the bottom line is this. Oli, I believe in his book, which mm-hmm. was done uh, through Crowbar Press with Scott Teal, which yeah. right there says it's, it's a main event. And Oli speaks extremely high of Eddie Graham in his book. Yeah. And then I brought up Bill Watts because he's the other one that uh, both in previous interviews, when I've heard Bill Watts speak mm-hmm. and in his book, which again, I would tell you, run, don't walk to get it. Okay. He speaks extremely high of Eddie Graham. And here's what happens when you mentioned Eddie Graham. Bill Watts and Ole Anderson both said that there were three promoters that they looked up to and and strive to be like. Mm -hmm. Now, this might surprise you. I don't know. But the three promoters were Fern Gagne, Roy Shire from the San Francisco Territory, Mm -hmm. and Eddie Graham. And both Ole and Watts have extreme uh, accolades for, for those three promoters. Yeah. When you talk about Eddie Graham, he brought into Florida an era where, you know, you got to remember in the Florida territory, and Florida itself was a territory. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, the state of Florida was a territory. They wrestled under the, uh, the umbrella of the NWA. But they had their own championships along with recognizing the NWA world champion. And that's where their affiliation came in. But they had their own Florida champion. They had their own Florida tag team champions, their own Southern champion, their own Southern tag team champions. And there were other titles here and there that they would, you know, uh, recognize for whatever purpose it served at the time, which sometimes most titles pop up and go away. Yeah, But those four are the ones that are primary. And 
Eddie worked the territory with keeping in mind that Florida being a territory of itself, they ran wrestling five nights a week or six nights a week. Okay. Um, off the top of my head, if I remember, they would have uh, uh, Monday, and I might be off on, on the exact cities, but they would run like Monday on, in Miami, Tuesday in Tampa, Wednesdays, maybe St. Petersburg, uh, Thursdays, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami Beach had, had their own cards, their own night. Um, there's, there's probably another city or something I'm missing. And those mm-hmm. day, those actual days may be off, but that's what they did. And it was a right. weekly schedule. So when a wrestler would go to Florida to work, well, they basically, aside from not only having those five or six night, nightly matches, nightly cards to go to and wrestle on, they also would have their occasional spot shows and small town cards that they would put together. So when people went down to the Florida territory, they, they could make a good payday. And, and the good thing about it through the years is a lot of times because the wrestlers up north, especially like here in Minnesota, where it's, you know, I've teased, but it's cold 10 months out of the year, yeah. they will take a vacation. The guys would take a vacation and they'd go down to Florida and get bookings from Eddie. All they, you know, all they would do is, you know, give Eddie a call and say, hey, I'm going to be in town so-and-so dates. And, uh, you know, Eddie say, sure, we'll get you on the card. We'll do this. We'll do that. And occasionally Eddie would actually work the guys into two programs that, that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that, I'll give you an example. Back in 1972, when uh, Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel were the AWA tag team champions, mm-hmm. they took some time off over the winter from the AWA. They were down went down to Florida and they were down there for a couple, three weeks. And of course up here, you know, they're just, they'll, their fans are told, well, they're defending the championship, you know, somewhere in the world because the AWA was a world title, you know? Right. And, uh, but they're down in Florida, Ray and Nick. And what happened down there at the time was um, Eddie put them into a program with guys like Tim Woods and uh, Oh boy. What was it? Hiro Matsuda. I think Bob Orton was included in it. Bob Orton Sr., Daddy Orton. Um, but anyway, Nick and Ray actually won for a couple of weeks. While they were there, they won the Florida Tag Team title. Oh, wow. The interesting, and the interesting thing was is that they were not acknowledged at that time in Florida as AWA World Tag Team Champions. They were just Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel, and they come in. And they win this regional championship, which down there is huge. Yeah. And then when they were ready to leave, then they lost the titles. Um, I'd have to look in the in my title history book uh, who they won it from and who they mm-hmm. lost it from. But I know Bob Orton and Tim Woods and a couple of those others were kind of in that circle. Yeah. So that would be an example of how, how Eddie ran his territory. And other guys from other territories would yeah. do the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting that you um, bring up Nick and Ray. Uh, they were such great tag team. And in the Florida, you know, uh, I, when I read that book by B. Brian Blair, Truth Be Told, that it talks about how Eddie developed people, uh, trained them. You know, they go to the armories and stuff around in Florida, Tampa. And it's just I think that is a lost art for today, but Eddie, you know, he really revolutionized, I think the business as far as, as one of the top thinkers of coming up with things from that era, what was probably in your mind, one of the best angles or or feuds that, that came out of, from Florida. You know, back in the day, um, am I allowed to back up and answer my own question? Sure. You, you, okay. you know, I just happened to grab one of my title lists here since okay. we were uh, talking about that Nick and Ray thing. Yeah. So this old man's memory is not too bad yet. Um, Nick and Ray went down to Florida in uh, July of 72 
Okay. And they won the Florida, the Southern Florida Championship from Hiro Matsuda and Tim Woods. There you go. See? And they held, they, they won it on July 5th in the summer, no less. And they lost it to Matsuda and Bob Orton two <laughs> weeks later. Well, there you go. You had it right. So there you go. I had the right guys. Um, okay. You're not, answer you're, not your question. Sli- you're not slipping. Don't worry. Well, I just remember stuff. I don't sometimes don't remember exact dates. Yeah. Anyway, to answer your question about the best feuds, you know, uh, back in about uh, 1967, I started trading programs. You know, mm-hmm. you, I've told you the story how I would trade with different territories. Yep. And I was sending, believe it or not, by, by 1969, I was sending our Twin City programs down to Scott Teal, who was living in Florida at the time. And uh, he may have had something to do with the programs down there, too. I, I don't remember. But Scott would send me the programs and I would get the programs from Tampa and Fort Lauderdale and Miami Beach. So it was fun. So to answer your question, one of the feuds that really intrigued me back in the, in the late 60s, very early 70s, there was a guy named Boris Malenko. And he, he wrestled, Larry Simon was his real name. And he wrestled, of course, as Boris Maximilianovich Malenko, the great Malenko, and he was a Russian. What, what intrigued me about him when I first heard that he was down there was that I had remembered that he had actually wrestled for Vern Gagne in the early 60s. Oh, wow. And, of course, my mind, my mind always gets intrigued by, okay, I got to learn about this. Well, Malenko wrestled for Vern. Well, I shouldn't say Malenko wrestled for Vern. Vern had a German wrestling by the name of Otto von Krupp, who was Larry Simon. Yeah. So he wrestled for Vern for a couple of years in the early 60s as Otto von Krupp. And uh, he held our tag team title with uh, uh, Texas Bob Geigel for a while, the AWA tag team title. But when when Malenko was down in Florida, um, I don't recall at the time that there, there this was would have been in the, the later 60s. Mm-hmm. I don't recall at the time that there seemed by the wrestling magazines that were, you know, we'd purchased, that there seemed to be a feud that just, it seemed so intense and so real. And it was Eddie Graham and Boris Malenko. Okay. And they had all kinds of matches. And Boris would get into these, you know, we're going to have a Russian chain match. And uh, they had a they had a gimmick they worked down there, which was unique because I hadn't heard it before that. And I never heard it afterwards. Uh, supposedly, Boris's false teeth fell out. And, oh. and I think it was Eddie Graham that stomped <laughs> on them and broke them or smashed them. And, of course, then you got to have a rematch for that. You know, it's that type of creative stuff yeah. that... Uh, really made it and the chain matches and, and Boris Malenko was was noted for not being afraid to put a little color into it if he needed to if you know what I mean yeah so uh I, I think that was one of the feuds that stand out for me as and I would have been a younger kid at that time yeah now there's a lot of guys that went through Florida um, oh yeah you know we talked about B. Brian Blair Steve Kern Paul Orndorff um that's just to name a few uh, I think I think just to clarify, just a couple of those guys for sure, Kern and uh, and uh, Blair, uh, they were pretty much Florida natives. Right. I mean that was their that was their territory. That's where they got their their starts. But, in. Yeah. But uh, Orndorff, um, I don't know if he started in Florida, but he did work down there. For what you're right, a lot of guys came in. A lot of guys yeah. came in and left. It was yeah. a, it was a really they had their mainstays. Yeah. And, and maybe we should touch on that real quick. Let's, let's do it. You know, all territories, as we know, had their mainstays. The guys that, the, the four, three, four, five guys that seemed to always be in the territory. And that for one reason or another, anyone that came into the territory would be worked into a program with these guys. Mm-hmm. So AWA, we had Crusher, Mad Dog, Bachwinkle, Heenan, and, and Larry Hennig. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that came through, of course, Fern. 
but anybody came through, they, they ended up working with those guys. In Florida, for sure, Eddie Graham. Yep. Boris Malenko was a regular down there, a mainstay. Uh, Bob Wharton Sr. was for sure transplanted there and, and became a, a mainstay. Mm-hmm. Another one that was there quite a bit uh, in that late 60s, early 70s was um, Tarzan Tyler. Okay. And they would, uh, they would work a lot of programs around uh, Tyler being involved. And then, of course, um, as time went on, uh, the Briscoes, Jack and Jerry, Jack and they, Jerry. Were, they were Florida natives. And they, a lot of the uh, Florida territory could be written around their antics, both as a team and separately. And then, of course, when Jack became NWA world champ, mm-hmm. it was a big deal when he'd come home. Um, the Funk brothers, Dory and Terry also, even though they were Texans at heart and, and had their own territory in Amarillo, yeah. but they, uh, they, were, they were pretty raw regulars in the Florida territory. And then later on, by all means, we get to that American dream, Dusty Rhodes. I was just thinking that. Yeah, the American dream. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He, pretty much, he pretty much became Florida. Yeah. He would have been, you know, and again, I know I use references to the uh, AWA, but he would have been our crusher yeah. uh, after a while where he was the man that mm-hmm. you were going to get involved with if you came to Florida. Yeah. If you were a bad guy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was thinking Dusty Rhodes. I didn't realize the Funks. I know they were Texans and they worked a lot down there. They had, like you said, they had their own promotion, but that's that's pretty uh I didn't know about the Funks. I knew about the Briscoes and their their feud, their feud down in Florida was rather unique because um when Dory Jr. was the NWA champion, mm-hmm. and then of course he and Terry would team up. Well, of course, in Texas, in Amarillo and Texas cities, when they would wrestle against the Briscoes, mm-hmm. the Briscoes were actually the, the heels or the ones the fans would, would boo, believe it or not. And I've always thought it interesting that Jack Briscoe could be booed, but then you have to realize that as the NWA champion, their formula for champion was always that whoever held the title had to be able to go into whatever city they're going into and wrestle their top heel or their top baby and play the respective role. So in Texas, the Briscoes were the heels, but when the Funks would go to Florida and they had many matches there, Mm -hmm. the Briscoes were the cheered ones and and Dory and Terry took the heat. So that was, that was a unique feud where they could play both parts on, you know, different parts of the country. That is pretty, that's pretty neat. So, you know, Florida, I know we talk about Eddie, but, there has to be some other people behind the scenes there that that helped with the creativity. I'm not saying that, you know, Eddie was the man, you know, he was the guy, but was there anybody else down there that really helped him with the, the creativity of the booking or uh, anything like that? Who, who wrestled who and the feuds? Well, Eddie, Eddie, like, you know, being the head of the promotion, let's give him that. He would right. have been, we'll just say he was, you know, there, Vern Gagne. Yeah. But he, he had excellent talent and bookers that he would bring in from time to time to work with him mm-hmm. and to, you know, from the creative end of it. Uh, Bill Watts was mm-hmm. one of his bookers for a while. And, you know, Bill had an extremely creative mind for the yeah. business. And he, w- he was in there for a while. We already mentioned Dusty. Dusty played a huge part in the 70s and the very early 80s where, you know, Dusty pretty much called the shots. Mm -hmm. And I mean, by that time, you know, and of course, uh, without looking it up, I don't I don't remember what year uh, Eddie passed away. But uh, Jerry or uh, Dusty was in charge after that and ran the territory. They they would have guys like Bob Root. Hiro Matsuda was involved in a lot of things. And I don't know if I'm entirely correct on it, but I I would think he had a lot to say about what went on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Maybe Boris did a little bit too. I don't know. But, you know, with the guys that he had, and Hiro Matsuda is a good example. He and uh, Malenko were also responsible for running uh, training camps 
and, okay. and bringing guys into the business. Yeah. So it goes back to that old story when we talk about the training camps around the world that they around the wrestling business at that time, when you had Stu Hart up in Calgary, mm-hmm. who, you know, you come out of the dungeon in Calgary, you were a wrestler and you yeah. could defend yourself and you were tough. Um, the same with Vern yeah. in the AWA, yeah. you know, anybody that come out of his camp, they made money anywhere they went or at home. Yep. And then you had Malenko and Matsuda who were doing training. And then of course, let's not forget the funks because they owed daddy funk, Dory senior. And, uh, and again, junior and and Terry later on, Mm -hmm. they, they brought in talent like you wouldn't believe. And all of that talent, all of that talent, that all these guys that we're talking about, the trained wrestlers, they eventually uh, many, many of them ended up in Florida and made a lot of money working that territory. Yeah. Guys like Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch and Bobby Duncombe and uh, Ricky Steamboat, um, Bill Watts himself, Dusty, Dick Murdoch, uh, Jack Mulligan or Bob Windham and the whole Windham family. Okay. Who, you know, got their training too. Bob yeah. Blackjack Mulligan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it was, it was a, I always thought back in the territory days that, you know, if I could, if I would have picked one territory that I could just go and spend a couple months in yeah. Florida was always on my list because number one, I'd see wrestling every week or every night yeah. of the week. If I wanted to travel a few miles, I mean, Miami and Tampa, you know, there's, there's some distance yeah. and Fort Lauderdale and whatever. But, um, you know, if you're willing to drive, you could have had fun every day. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that, you know, those guys back then, they could hop around the state like that. Excuse me. And uh, make money. I mean, week after week. Um, It didn't get stale. It didn't get uh, stagnant, if you will. It, It was fresh. I mean, that's kind of a... I don't want to say lost art, but it's, you know, nowadays it's, you kind of know what's going to happen. You're going right. to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to know probably 99% of the time. There's not a lot of well, surprises. I, I think what you have to realize is that Florida, because of the weather, mm-hmm. you know, if you get into Orlando, Tampa, Miami, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, in February it's 70, 80 degrees. Yeah. And you know, when you come up north, you know, we're sitting here 10 below zero and, and believing winter is never going to end. And so for a lot of the guys, uh, if they could get booked in the Florida territory, and I'm going to tell you something, if you, if you were able to see the programs, and again, I'm very fortunate to have programs from, from about, oh boy, 55, 56, 1956 all the way to about 1983 or four mm-hmm. and, and pretty much every week. If you look at the talent, a lot of these guys, they may not have made as much money working in Florida, but it was a trade-off for them. Yeah. I didn't have to put up with the winter or the cold or the travel that was in other territories where you mm-hmm. had to travel, you know, three, four, 500, 600 miles to go to the next town yeah. to wrestle. And of course, the weather itself, uh, a guy like Bob Root, who was a, a Florida mainstay for, for a long time in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And Bob himself, he says, I had, he says, I got a call from Vern to go to, to, go to Minnesota. And he says, there wasn't any amount of money that he could have promised me or, or you know, to give me because I didn't want to put up with the winters. He says, I, put a, I, I grew up in Michigan. And that was enough winter for me. So that was a trade-off for him. Yeah. And, you know, Bob Roop, anybody that knows anything about Bob Roop, he's a great amateur yep. champion. Yeah. Uh, he represented uh, the United States in 1964. And uh, he was an excellent technical wrestler, a real wrestler who yeah. could add the, the showmanship and everything and, and make money doing that. But he would have fit in in the AWA like, you know, it'd be like gravy and mashed potatoes. They just go together. Right. But he didn't want to come up here for the weather. So he, he chose, I, I'm sure he didn't make as much money, 
but it was it made sense for him yeah yeah that's true uh like you said awa had a lot of great talent but that the winners i mean i'm from wisconsin uh there were there's pretty cold up there in the winter time so we we have people right now we're at you know you and i are doing this on july 11th yeah and um the weather here in Minnesota has been for about the last couple of weeks, we've been into the upper eighties and nineties with yeah. high humidity. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it gets a little sticky, but you know what? I don't complain because we get, we just get the worst winters. Yeah. And for me, I, I choose my poison. I take <laughs> the lesser of the two poisons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I understand. I understand. So Florida, the hot spot, you know, we're talking about travel and stuff. Uh, I'm just trying to understand how these guys, I mean, they made some good money in that era, especially. What do you think was really the, the key to that success? I mean, you're running five, six shows a week, you know, and rotating city to city. You know, here's the interesting thing. And I think for a lot of people today, it's hard to to conceive that because we live in this instant information technology world today. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's a news story that breaks, God forbid you have a newspaper subscription and you live out in the country because by the time you get the news, you know, the world's been destroyed and it's gone because... But it, what, I, what, what really it is, is that back in the kayfabe era, and this is what most fans today who didn't grow up during that time, yeah. they don't understand that wrestling, for one thing, was not covered by the media. It wasn't, it wasn't even on the radar. A lot of the newspapers and the, the sports outlets, they didn't want to acknowledge that it even existed. And that's sad. But it's truth. Yeah. And so promoters in the kayfabe era, because we had no information links, mm-hmm. um, you could hold a card and let's just use Miami and Tampa. Okay. You could hold a card in Miami on Monday night and you could hold a card that maybe was similar in talent and, and uh, content on Tuesday night in Tampa. And for all practical purposes, neither of the two fans from the given nights knew of the other card. I mean, as weird as that seems. Yeah. No, you, and, and that I was the it. same. That was the same in most of the territories, mm-hmm. the promoters, they could get away with giving you something in your little hometown where you had your local television program and they only advertise the card you're going to see. And you know, every promotion fans, Promoters have opened the pocketbooks. They've they've went all out to get the champion here. And just for you, we had no way to discount that. And we believed our world was smaller. Really was. The world was smaller. Whereas today, if they tried to tell you that, you you know, within nanoseconds, you go, oh, come on. They just wrestled 16 times in the last 15 days. You know, come on. (laughs) So that's really part of it. They, they could get away with running five days a week in five different cities and it with but the rarest exception, somebody would actually be uh, able to move or travel to all five towns in Florida or six towns yeah. and rest and, and see rest. They would see it in their own respective city, watch it on TV and get the tape for that particular city. And they'd be happy as pigs playing in mud that they're getting to see it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I yeah. It, so, it's it's a it's a very digital world now, instantaneous. You asked me a minute ago too, and my mind races. You asked me a minute ago about great feuds and great programs in Florida. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we mentioned Dusty Rhodes, and so we mentioned Bill Watts. Mm-hmm. Probably not a lot of fans know that it was Bill Watts that actually turned dusty roads into the american dream making him a baby face in florida okay we did not know that 
Dusty had been a Bill Watts, I believe was the booker down there at the time. And Bill was wrestling when he'd go down to Florida. A lot of times he was a heel. Yeah. But um, he had, um, and I'm just reflecting here. Mm -hmm. He had Dusty Rhodes aligned with Gary Hart, who was one of the notorious managers of the day and a very good one, I would add, Mm -hmm. and probably underrated in many uh, manager polls but a very good talker, very good manager. They had Dusty aligned with him and a Korean wrestler by the name of Pak Song. Yeah. Uh, I believe that sometimes they build him as Pak Song Nam, N-A-M, but Pak Song. And they actually had Gary Hart and Pak Song turn on Dusty Rhodes in a tag team encounter. Okay. And Dusty was, Dusty was the most hated heel. And then Dusty started to to hone that son of a plumber uh, persona gimmick that he had, you know, that he was the average working class guy, came from working class roots. Yeah. And, uh, you know, putting his jive into it. Yeah. And, you know, the rest is history. But it was Bill Watts that made that infamous turn in Florida. And it was around 1974-ish. And that's probably, I think that is the year, 1974. Okay. And Dusty had been up in the AWA uh, as a heel before that. And then he had been wrestling down in Florida. And then uh, he, he got, Vern actually did a, a baby face change with, uh, from heel to baby with Dusty. But it was non-eventful compared to what Bill Watts did with him in Florida. Yeah. And he was actually a baby in Florida before he was switched in the AWA. Okay, there you go. Something I, had I, a, I didn't know about Bill Watts. I knew he turned babyface, but I didn't know who did it. And... Yeah, it was it was Pac Song, and uh, there's actually a uh, a shoot interview floating out there. I don't know what the name of it is or anything. You know, here's the thing, Brian. I don't watch any of these things anymore, and I. Yeah. But Bill Watts talked about the the great, and he calls him Pac Song Dam at the time okay but i i usually only saw him listed as pack song okay and, and if you if and for those that don't remember what pack song looked like um he was korean i believe mm-hmm. and i i never saw him in person but he always looked body and facial wise very similar to me as shozo kobayashi okay and Kobayashi right. was Japanese, but yeah. I mean, they just, they, they just seem to me to have similar body, uh, uh-uh. body types. Okay. Interesting. All right. Florida. I tell you, you've got some interesting perspectives. Um, was that one of your top, your, one of your favorite areas that you like to collect and like to, uh, you know, you switching back programs and, TV tapings, that kind of stuff. The thing that was fun, you know, when I, when I did the trading in those days, um, it it was exciting because yes, they ran weekly Mm -hmm. and, you know, Florida, like I said, they ran weekly cards. So if you're going to get your trading with someone in Tampa, you're going to get four Tampa programs a month. And, uh, they generally ran every Tuesday, regardless, unless I, I, I think it was, you know, if it was Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve, they didn't run. But otherwise, pretty much Tampa ran Tuesday nights. And I know Tampa especially ran Tuesdays because I was down there a few times for Tampa cards at the Fort Hesterly Armory for uh, wrestling. And, you know, that, that was another thing that was fun about it is the venues, because the, the wrestling auditoriums, National Guard armories and arenas back in the day, uh, they were a lot smaller than what today we're accustomed to when we have, we have uh, auditoriums and arenas that can seat 60, 70,000 people. Yeah. And back in the day, uh, the Fort Hesterly Armory, and it was a National Guard Army, uh, they could probably hold... And I don't know, I, I'm guessing here, maybe 3,000, 3,500 if it was full. Mm-hmm. But if you get a sellout, which they did often, often, often on a Tuesday night, 
Well, you figure you take that 3,500 or 3,000 times four for a month, you know, three yeah. times four, there you are. You're talking, you know, 12,000 12, 12, fans a month for one city. Yeah. And then you, you put in the other cities and the same thing. The uh, uh, one of them ran in a convention center. It was, I think it was, it might've been Miami or Miami beach convention center, but they have the same type of things where you'd have these smaller venues. Okay. And to put that into perspective, we had, uh, and I love, we go off on little tangents, but I think it puts it in, into paints a picture for fans. Yeah. When, uh, when, Minnesota, when we had, we used to run weekly cards back in the 60s and very early 70s. So, again, you'd have four cards a month. But um, when they were running twice a month, you'd have Minneapolis and St. Paul, and you have an auditorium that holds 10,000 if it's full, and they draw 6,500, 6,000, 7,000 fans for a card. Again, do the math, you're drawing. 12, 13, 14,000 a month. Yeah. That's pretty doggone good. Yeah. And, you know, you can brag today about in, well, I don't want to go to the modern day world, but you can go to the venues today where they say, well, we got 50,000 fans for this card, for this pay-per-view or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you're only drawing one, one card. You know, we, we did it. And then the other thing too, is that the guys always had a paid that that was the key thing if anything if anything was lost that is probably the most vital loss from the kayfabe era when wrestling went national and and it evolved into what it is today mm -hmm. um it was the fact that wrestlers lost places to go to to make money yeah because they could do it on a full-time basis if they were willing to travel Mm -hmm. They could drive from city to city. Like I said, if they wanted to drive two, 300 miles to get to the next town, they could work. Yeah. Or they could, you know, as, as things went on, they could work this city tonight, fly to this city tomorrow night, come back here the next night, back and forth. Mm -hmm. They could have, they could have work four, five, six, seven nights a week. And yeah. a lot of wrestlers did. And a lot of wrestlers made a lot of money doing it that were full-time wrestlers. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, I think it was you and, and maybe, Jumping Jim Brunzel had told me that at one time uh, when he started, uh, there were 26 territories. There were 26 up to 30 at one point. Okay, yeah. during the kayfabe era. So if, <clears throat> like you said, you got a little bit stale in AWA, you could go to yeah. Texas and kind of revamp a little bit or recharge, whatever, um, you know, or – like you said, when they would, oh, you're suspended for six months from Florida. Well, you're, you go to wherever, Cal, you know, the mid-Atlantic yeah. uh, and work there. And, and nobody knew the difference because, like you said, there wasn't the Internet and there wasn't this instantaneous information. And, uh, you know, it's just I, I think today I, there's wrestlers that are on uh, and I watch I don't watch it all the time. I, I watch some of it. And it, it's not, how do you say, the fresh aspect of it. You know, it's the same characters. They might change their uh, T-shirt, you know. Yeah. And I'm not making, I'm not disrespecting these guys, but, you know, one week you're the head of the table, and then the next week you're uh, the tribal chief. And, and no disrespect to that yeah. professional wrestler, yeah. but – you know, if you lost your title and went away for a year and then maybe came back, you know, and, and went somewhere else and stuff like that, it's just kind of a lost art. Two things that were very different. And, uh, you know, when you meant we, because we are talking about Florida and Eddie Graham. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. Vern Ganya and Eddie Graham, they often compared themselves as well they were friends mm -hmm. they compared themselves as you know equally great promoters and again i used earlier in the beginning when i said about ole anderson uh bill watts roy shire eddie graham and Vern Gagne. yeah if you were ever to get those five guys into a room 
I, if I were to pick five guys in the business that I wanted more to hear, hear from, it would have been those five. Yeah. I'm not saying there are others that you could put into the mix, but those guys would have been genius. And the interesting thing is, is that if you looked at their respective promoting style and their territories, Mm -hmm. they were all successful territories and their styles were very similar. And yet when you talk to fans today, if you want to get the critics out there, those five guys are probably the most picked on mm-hmm. and the most criticized yep. because they did this or they did that or they didn't do this. Well, it, it kind of goes by, and as much as I hate to say this, Vince McMahon Jr. today, you can pick on that guy all day long and criticize and complain, but he's successful. Yeah, yeah. You know, not not the way we'd like him to be sometimes, yeah. but and that's what it was with Ganya Watts, Eddie, and, and so on. Yeah. And, and Vern and Eddie used to exchange talent. Yes. And, and in those territory days, here's here was what was fun. Uh, and Stu Hart would be one of these guys that would do this. The promoters, one promoter would call another promoter, and they'd say, you know, hey, I got this young kid up here. I've been working with him, went through the camp. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see him get some, some additional training, work with some different styles. You know, can I send them down? Can you, can you give them somewhere? Oh yeah, send them down and, and I'll give you so-and-so, you know, I'll send somebody up or whatever. And that's the way it worked. And then you had your, your occasional, well, you know, so-and-so was injured and he's going to be out of action for a while. And so when you look at another guy that was a mainstay in the seventies in Florida, mm-hmm. Don Morocco. Don Magnificent Morocco. Morocco. Yes. And he, he also wrestled, um, I believe he called himself the Magnificent M with a mask on for just a short time. Okay. He was, he was Magnificent Morocco. Well, he got most of his start with Ferengani yeah. when he came up here and worked with the, with the likes of Robinson and Hennig and Stevens and Koloff and Superstar Graham. I mean, how can you not learn from these guys? Right. So he goes down to Florida, Morocco does, and he's working with guys like Jack Briscoe and Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch and Bobby Duncombe and, you know, Wahoo McDaniel. And how can you not be good? Yeah. And, Mor- and Morocco was one of those guys that if you followed his career, um, and I don't know Don Morocco personally. Yeah. I did. I did talk with him. Oh my gosh! It's fifty years ago this month. I wow. talked with him. Brief, I talked with him briefly for um, a couple of minutes at two different Twin City wrestling cards. Um, in fact, on my on my uh, wrestling page, I actually posted a picture of Don Morocco with uh, Ramon Torres. They were teaming here in Minnesota. And I had taken the picture and I had been talking with Don at that point. But um, Don got, to me, if I were to name some of the guys that I feel really doesn't get the credit they deserve is for being as good as he was. Mm-hmm. And then to transform into such a great heel as well. I think it's Don Morocco. Yeah. Don was, uh, he, he learned so well from all the guys that he worked with. Before he came up to Vern, he was in Hawaii a little bit. And he had Ed Francis around him and, uh, you know, others down there. But uh, he, he, he absorbed so much from so many guys mm-hmm. and just, just made himself, to me, an excellent talent. I don't know how his head was as far as the business, yeah. you know, whether he was always totally into it. I know he'd rather be out surfing and in a warmer climate than working in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. I want to ask you one more thing. Um, let's talk about, you know, a lot of the territories back then, they did a lot of uh, community support events, the JCs, Scouts, you know, community-related programs. How was Florida with that? Do you know of anything that they really supported as far as in the communities that they, they wrestled in? Well, first on. of all, any any local promotion would usually run smaller shows, maybe in some smaller towns, mm-hmm. and they would do it in conjunction with the JCs or 
or some uh, fundraising event, that sort of thing. Yeah. But um, Eddie Graham was very heavy into the Boys Ranch okay. in uh, uh, Tampa and Miami. And so there were there were always fundraising events and, and stuff that took place around that. So, yeah, their, their mind was in the community. And I mean, Eddie being, you know, this is something a lot of fans don't realize, too. Um, even though the newspapers or the news media didn't always give wrestling the credit that it so rightly deserved, the, the usually the, the guys like Eddie Graham and Vern Gagne and Dory Funk Sr. and the Sam Muchnicks and, and all these other guys in the community, in the city that mm-hmm. they they worked in, lived in, mm-hmm. they were, they were uh, well accepted and very popular. And they were always willing to, you know, go to different functions and be guests and do things like that. So uh, they gave back to the communities probably a lot more in many senses than the communities gave to them. Yeah. And it okay. should have been the other way around. Yeah. But Eddie was very popular uh, in Florida, you know, which is weird too, because before he came to Florida in 1964, I mean, he had been one of the most notorious heels in the business for a number of years. Yeah. And when he and he and brother Jerry Graham were together, uh, you'll always hear stories if you pick up or read stories when you pick up the old wrestling magazines about the Golden Grahams, <laughs> you know, Dr. Jerry and Eddie. And uh, they were probably in the tag team era of the late 50s and the early 60s. Yeah. If you name, if you were to name the top ten tag teams, uh, Eddie and Jerry are probably right up there, if not near the top. They're at the top. Yeah. Great. Just a great tag team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you mentioned the Grand Brothers. I think, if I memory serves me right, I think they were the first two people on the the first edition of Sport or wrestling review magazine or sports review wrestling magazine. I'm almost positive. They are the first ones on the cover. They, they were, um, well, wrestling review magazine. Okay. Without looking at my, Oh yeah. Wrestling review. Yeah. Uh, Eddie and Jerry were on the debut issue. Okay. Uh, the fall of 1959, the okay. debut issue, they're on the cover. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yep, I knew 100%. Sport- yeah, okay. That was the first wrestling magazine I ever bought, so I should never forget that, and I still have it. Uh, there you go. There you go. My grandma, I told you one yeah. time, my grandma. I asked her for 50 cents, and you'd have thought I was asking her to give up a, give up a kidney. 50 cents, that's so much money, but okay, here you go. It's oh, grandma. grandma. Thank you. Yeah, oh, grandma, grandma, thank you. Yeah. And, uh, and I, through thick and thin, I've saved that and everything else along the way. So that's great. Love my grandma. Yeah. You got to love grandma. Yeah. My grandma used to pay for my tickets to go to those wrestling matches when they were around the town in Rice Lake and stuff when I was a kid, because my dad would refused to uh, pay for that stuff. And it wasn't very much. It was like back then, like, like $5. Well, but you got to you got to put it into price in era but, perspective. You know, right. well, five bucks was probably like thirty today. Right, know? right. But you I'm know, saying, so, Grandma yeah. said, Brian, I will I will get you the ticket, and she did, and yeah. then I would go. Uh, my dad wasn't very happy about it, but you know that's just the way what, it is. What, you you and I may have talked about this before, mm-hmm. but what what years did you live in Rice Lake? No, oh, I was born there in 70 and I left there okay. in uh, 89. I left. Uh, went okay, so were you there for Ric Flair's I was, debut wrestling match? I was, I was not at the match. I was a little kid. I was probably, what, two years old. So, no. Yeah, that, was well, not, yeah, that would have been. Okay. Because yeah, that was, uh, I think, December 10th of 74. You know, it's funny. Or, as I talked to Sergeant Slaughter at WrestleCon. And his first match was, was in, Rice, in Rice, Lake. Rice Lake, Wisconsin, with Playboy Buddy Rose, who was under a different name then. Yeah, Paul Pershman. Yep. And yeah. he said, I don't remember what year it was, but he told me that because he asked me where I'm from, and I told him, and he's like, it was my first wrestling match there. So I guess we were kind of a little tiny hot spot back in the day. Well, and there you go when you're talking Pershman, Slaughter, Bob Remus. 
and Ric Flair. You're talking three of Vern's uh, really most successful trainees. Well, not most successful, but three successful trainees. Right. And Rice Lake was not a major hub, but it certainly was one of our regular stops. Yeah. On and Vern would send, you know, the rookies at that point, as they were called, yeah. send them out there to, to work the prelims. And uh, it's it's in all likelihood, uh, if Slaughter and, or in that case, he would have been Bob Remus. Mm-hmm. But if he and Pershman were in on the card, um, chances are very good that it was one or one or both of them that brought the ring to the to the city that night. Because that's that's another thing that the rookies had to do is they would haul the ring truck yeah. to whatever small town yeah. to get it set up. Yeah, so the that was – go ahead, George. The other thing I want to touch on, because we were talking Florida, and I was yeah. mentioning Bob Roop before, and we're talking about rookies. Yeah. One of the things that Eddie Graham did, you know, he had such a creative mind. And Eddie was of the, of the stature, too, that – he wanted his wrestlers to know how to wrestle. Does that sound familiar? It, it, does, it, yeah, it does indeed, yeah. Eddie wanted you to know the fundamentals. He wanted you to know how to get into the ring and somewhat protect yourself and make it look real. Mm-hmm. And what he would do, I mentioned Bob Roop. Mm-hmm. Bob Roop, you want to talk about a guy who, again, probably does not get the credit he deserves he was one of the, you know, I'm, I'm he's fairly certain he was a shooter. I mean, Bob Roop could take you down, break your arm off and hand it to you before you knew he'd taken it off. That's just, I give him that credit. Yeah. And Eddie Graham used to bring in guys, young kids that wanted to wrestle. They might've been going through Matsuda's uh, school or, or, uh, you know, some of them would just come in and I want to be a wrestler. You know, they think it's easy. Well, Eddie would send Bob Roop out and he'd go in there and he'd say, go in and stretch this kid for a while. You know, whether the guy had some, some matches under his belt or not, but Eddie wanted to see what the guy could do and what he couldn't do. And yeah. whether or not he was, you know, whether or not he had it in his heart mm-hmm. to continue. So Bob Roop would be brought in to get in there and just make this guy's life tough for the next five, <laughs> 10 minutes. Yeah. And usually, and Bob has told this story, uh, usually within a few minutes, you know, Bob would have the poor kid puking. <laughs> and I mean, and that sounds, that sounds terrible, but no. that's the way, that is the way the business in the kayfabe era, you know, before they would ever admit to any wrestler that the endings of the matches were predetermined or that, you know, some of the moves we do in the matches are choreographed a little bit here and there because someone's calling the match as they do it. Right. Before they would do any of that, they really wanted to test these guys. And and they wanted to get them in there and just punish them. And that's how they found out if they were going to be dedicated to the business. Yeah. And, and you know, you can't say it wasn't uh, – it wasn't a bad thing because when you look at all the talent that came out of this mm-hmm. from all these different camps, the business would not have had the major stars that we did mm-hmm. if that type of uh, wrestling, you know, and training wasn't done. Yeah, no, I agree. I got one more thing that you just mentioned a name and it kind of popped in my head. Hiro Matsuda. Yeah. Now I have been told uh, that yes. he, he I'm going to say yes. Be, I'm going to say yes before you answer. Yeah, because you know what I'm asking, don't you? That he oh, would try yeah. to hurt you for real. I mean, he and in, in, in his camps and stuff, he he would try. I mean, he broke Hulk Hogan's leg. That's what I was going to say. That yeah. that's not a rumor. He did yeah, break but, Hogan's leg, and and he's hurt a lot of people. But you know, I understand trying to test somebody and make sure that okay, you're ready for this. But do you think? doing that kind of stuff, especially in that era, uh, was a little, well, I wouldn't say it's quite excessive. I mean, breaking somebody's leg on purpose. Well, okay. I don't know exactly what happened in the Hogan Matsuda situation. Okay. It is true that Hogan's leg was snapped by Matsuda. 
here's the way I would say to you, I, I would 100% agree that if this was the type of thing that was done on purpose, where I'm going to go in and I'm going to break this guy's arm, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to injure him. Yeah, I, I would not condone that. I don't think that's ethical. Right. Uh, but I, I want to take uh, play devil's advocate here, Brian. Okay. And I want to say that in many instances, it was probably instigated because of the individual going against whatever person was training him or working okay. with him. So yeah. a, a little bit ago when I said to you, well, Bob Roop used to go in and stretch these guys. Yeah. Bob Roop didn't go in the ring to break the guy's leg. Right. He didn't right. go in there to, you know, dislocate his shoulder or do any of this stuff. Right. What, what Bob Roop did was he went in there and he put on legitimate holds that were going to really test the pain threshold, really test the, the uh, fortitude of the wrestler, mm -hmm. the, the endurance of, of the supposed wrestler. Yeah. And then if that individual were snarky in the sense that that's the word I haven't used snarky snarky <laughs> snarky if if he was in the wrestler's face because you got to remember in the kayfabe era yeah. these guys the wrestlers themselves were yeah. often tested yeah and 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 uh uh when I say tested they, they were they were sometimes bullied into defending themselves or because the, 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 the guy that thinks he wants to be a wrestler or thinks that the wrestlers are phony, yeah. they go in there and they get in their face. And depending on how they react and do things in, the, in that little exhibition yeah. or how they treat the wrestler themselves, that's where that stuff comes from. Okay. You know, it's like, it, it's sort of, and, and again, I don't condone it. I wouldn't condone it. Right. But it's like, you know, I'm in the ring and you're, you're getting in my face and you're messing with me. And I'm going to say, screw you, buddy. Here, take this. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. You know, here's your ankle. Have fun eating lunch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I've just heard about Hero Matsu, not just Hogan, but there was some other. Hero, Hero was tough. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, there, there's no doubt that he put a lot of guys through some, I guess you could say torture. But if you look at some of the guys that he brought into the business, yeah. they all made money. They did. And, 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 and what he wanted to do most of all, and most of the wrestlers that were trainers, most of all, they wanted you to have respect mm -hmm. for the business yeah. and for them. Yeah. And don't go out there and say, we're phony, we're fake, or yeah. you think you're better than we are because you don't think we're real. That's when they showed you that, yes, we are real. Yeah. And we put on a good show for you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So no, I don't condone it. But okay, uh, just had to ask because I've heard things about it, Hero, and uh, you know he's no longer with us. But I mean, I you hear things, so I you're you're the expert or one of the experts. So I I don't, well, I don't know from, about that. Well, don't tell my wife. Don't tell my wife I'm an expert. She's not going to buy that. Well, <laughs> you're a trusted reliable thank you source and so if you thank say you. it it goes so yeah all right well on that note florida i've got some good insight on it i know our fans have george thanks for coming back on <laughs> i really appreciate it like i only i only <laughs> looked up one thing i grabbed a list yep. from my shelf yep. up here no i and i looked up the the florida thing i it was bothering me because I was tossing those four names yeah, out yeah. and I wanted to make sure I had them right. No, you know, and folks, full disclosure, George, we've done this last two times because George likes to do it like this. And I respect that. So we decided we're going to do that. So whenever he's on, probably from now on, we're going to just do it ad lib, no notes, no questions written down, predetermined. We're going to just go forward. So I want, yeah. I want to just say this, and, yep. and I appreciate us doing that. I, I told, just so the fans know, I told Brian beforehand, can we just have another uh, no-subject uh, conversation, see where it takes us? Hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, our AWA Unleashed mm -hmm. podcast that we do weekly, I do it with Mick Karch and Chris Tubbs. Yeah. I couldn't do it without Chris Tubbs. 
because he is the producer. He puts everything together. The man's a genius on a, a radio board here in the Twin Cities and a local station. And Mick Karch, of course, uh, he's the, the voice of Minnesota's independent wrestling scene and, and even had a yeah. stint with the AWA briefly, but he did nonetheless. Uh, he, he adds so much to the show. And the only difference between what we did today and that sh- and our show is that our show is pretty much scripted where we know the topic. We, we have notes. We, it, we, Chris wants everything real tight. Yeah. He puts little reins on us where I can't talk more <laughs> than I want to. And, uh, but like I say, both guys, I couldn't do yeah. the show without them and yeah. I have fun doing it. But oh, I yeah. like this. Too. Yeah, no, uh, folks, you know, I'll promote it. That's a great podcast. I watch it when it comes out or listen to it. Uh, it's a lot of great insight and you've got, you know, George and Mick are very, they're, I'm going to say experts. Uh, they have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of experience and, and, and Chris, he asks good questions on the matters and when they bring up stuff and, uh, it's a great podcast. We tell him what to ask us. <laughs> okay. That's well, even that's, that's the script part. All right. And, and so, oh, no, but know, Chris, Chris does, Chris does a lot on his own yeah. too. So, and, uh, but thank you. Thank yeah, you. No, and go out, you know, watch it on YouTube or listen to it on a podcast audio. It's great stuff. And, and George, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it, sir. It's always a pleasure. I always have fun, Brian, and I, yeah. I just so appreciate bumps and thumps. Thank and, you very uh, much. I hope you continue to do it. And yes, I hope I can come back and you can throw me another bone and see if I can nibble on it. <laughs> All right, folks, if you're watching, thank you. If you're listening, thank you. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Yes. All right. All right. And we will talk to you soon.